sometimes when we um, spend time in a solitary retreat like this, we can really feel pretty self-absorbed and pretty, uh, not really cut off from the world, but quite naturally uh, the mind sometimes turns to, well, uh, isn't this a little bit uh, kind of ignoring the conditions of the world and uh, not really taking care of and not doing what we can. Because we all feel, you know, as we do the practice that we are going, we are getting in touch with our own suffering and it makes us just that much more sensitive to and vulnerable to the conditions of suffering in the world. And this too happened, you know, when I was in the, in the monastery in Burma where when I went, uh, I could go to the monastery and there was no charge. You know, the, the, the place is open for uh, anyone who really wants to practice sincerely. And as long as you're there practicing sincerely, you can stay as long as you like, if you can get your visas. And it's... Uh, uh, the whole center is run on donations. There's no charge for uh, anyone to come there. I think the Burmese people have to pay a small, just a small daily fee, but minimal. And yet, uh, it's a very uh, well, it's a very large monastery. It's very well supported. And uh, even in the hardest of times, uh, there was always two meals a day. Sometimes it was pretty thin, thin meals, but nevertheless, uh, there were other times when there was just an abundance of, of food, maybe the best food available in Burma, uh, because the monks and senior monks especially are really uh, the most revered uh, of the social classes of Burma. And so uh, people are very generous and, and want to support uh, the monks, both to have the monks uh, in their midst in society, and also, of course, to practice generosity for themselves for their own happiness. Nevertheless, you know, after I'd been there for um, a period of time, uh, you know, I begin to think, oh, geez, shouldn't I be doing something for the people of Burma? Because I can see that, you know, they live under really hard conditions. While it is a wealthy country, it's, the wealth is not shared, and a lot of the people that would come to the um, monastery, really poor, but you know they would come and off, try to offer something, and sometimes it's just uh, you know a notebook or a pen or uh, just a small uh, an orange. I remember getting single pieces of fruit from people who wanted to have some uh, connection with the monk and practice generosity and. Uh, when you're in that recipient mode as a monk, whose, whose life totally dependent on donations, you cannot cannot handle money, cannot earn money, can't can't do anything. Your food, your housing, your medicine, and your clothes—the four essentials—everything has to be offered to you. So you quite naturally think, well, what can I do in return? And of course, you can't give them anything. You don't have anything. 
But the only thing you have is the integrity of your practice. That's all you can do. And so it's a great, uh, it's a great motivation to really practice um, with a lot of integrity and sincerity. And I remember during a particular, during a political upheaval in, in uh, Burma that I was telling you about uh, a couple of nights ago, uh, the, the place was all, the whole city was locked down. And uh, in the evenings we could hear where the fighting was going on in different parts of the city. But in the morning, uh, whether, whether there's a, a war going on or not, the monks still have to eat, so you have to get in, go on alms round still. And at that time, uh, even though I wasn't the most senior monk who usually leads the uh, alms round, uh, they put me at the head of the line of, of monks. And sometimes there were 20 monks and sometimes there were 120 monks. And we had a route that we would go through, uh, through the uh, city or through the suburb where we, where the monastery was. And uh, as soon as we got outside the monastery, we could see the effects of the fighting of the night before, you know, overturned cars and, and things like that. And on the course of a, about a, it's about an hour and a quarter, uh, alms round that we would go on, uh, we had to go through maybe a dozen, a dozen, fifteen checkpoints where the neighborhoods have blocked off the road into their neighborhood and they're standing guard there with sticks and old machetes and whatever they had. But when the monks come, of course, they are really happy to have the monks in the neighborhood. It's a, a form of protection, really. And uh, even in the very difficult times of that, uh, where food wasn't coming into the city and the water was shut off and the electricity was shut off and there's just Still, people wanted to support the monks, believing that they were there, you know, and having faith in the monks really holding the society together and offering a, a counterbalance, really, to the, um, the, the, other, the other side of the mind that was on display there. So it was really a, a challenge to uh, continue living off of their alms and living off of their donations uh, and to, to practice uh, uh, with integrity. So I would always, when I was going on alms round, uh, there's stories at the time of the Buddha how the, the benefit to the donors is, when they offer dana, is um, magnified by both the purity of their intention in giving, the purity of the recipient, you know, the purity of the receiver, and the, and the appropriateness of the gift. So when I would come, leading the line, would come up to the villagers who were lined up to offer dana, you can't talk to them, you don't, you don't really hardly look at them, you just open your bowl and let them put in what you do. All I would do is try to, to have metta in my heart for them, even though I'm, you know, you're kind of looking around like it'll, a lot to distract you uh, if you want to be distracted. But try to have metta in my heart and to uh, reach some states of tranquility where they could really feel uh, the peacefulness uh, of living in the monastery, even if they couldn't be there 
at least they could feel the effects of their gift in the peacefulness and the presence and the um, whatever loving kindness we could muster or have for them. So it was really a, a wonderful way to practice. And it was a, a challenging way, but a rewarding way. And even after five years of living on the uh, gifts of, of people in Burma, I didn't feel that uh, it was an unfair um, uh, relationship, or that there was an imbalance in the relationship. I knew that the work of just being in retreat and being in seclusion and developing the mind is valuable for everyone, even if you don't uh, express it uh, in the world. After I returned to the States and uh, disrobed and started teaching, after several years, one of my students came to me and said, uh, inquired whether I had a favorite uh, NGO or humanitarian organization that supported education in third world countries. And I said, no, I don't, don't know anything. I don't know anything about it. don't know anything about that. But I said, I'll keep, I'll keep, them, keep my eyes open. <laughs> and it was about a week later that I heard from one of my teachers in Burma that he wanted to build a school in his native village. So I said, he wants, a, he wants a high school in his native village, and he wants to support education in third world country. Maybe, so I asked each of them if, that, if they'd be willing to satisfy each other's desires, wish, aspirations. So they both agreed, and um, in the course of it, it was, you know, we were, we, he needed a school for uh, 300 students, six rooms for 300 students, and it was going to cost $20,000. So my, my friends, students said, okay, sure, $20,000. So I took the first 5000 went over to Burma to meet the Saida and to offer it to him, at which time he said, oh, by the way, you know, um, the price is actually $40,000. And I said, oh, gee, I don't know my, I don't know my, my, my friend, uh, he only said 20000 and I said, he said, well, you know, we like to have a single donor for the school. I said, yeah, okay. Well, anyway, you can reduce the price. And, you know, he called up his architect right there while I was there. Da, 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 da. Oh, we can reduce it this way and this way and do it for 25000 So I said, okay, I'll give you the other 5000 Went back, came back to the States and spoke to my friend. He says, oh, 40000 oh, That's no problem. We'll, okay, we'll do 40000 So I said, okay. So I called him up and we went back to the original design. And as they built the school, uh, I said to my friend, you want to go to Burma and see the school when it's done? He said, no, no. He says, it costs a couple thousand dollars. I might as well just send the money and do something good for him. I, I, I don't need to go see. So I said, okay. But when it was all done, he said, let's go to Burma. <laughs> let's go see the school. So I said, okay, so we, we made arrangements. I said, but I said, hey, look, if we're going all the way to Burma to, to look at this school, we better go to the monastery and practice a bit. Now, here was a retired stockbroker that, you know, living in <laughs> kind of retirement, happy retirement in Maui. And 
I said, you know, we ought to go to the monastery and practice. And it was the furthest thing from his mind. It was, but he said, what the heck? <laughs> so we scheduled three weeks at the monastery. When we got to Burma, uh, we flew up to Mandalay. Somebody picked us up in uh, a vehicle that was something like a car. <laughs> it was nothing you'd want to ride even to town on. But we were given a ride about four hours over roads that, well, not even roads, across fields. And it was just no air conditioner, no springs, no shock absorbers, nothing. It was torture. It was just unbearable. Nevertheless, we were on a mission. We were going to the school. And it was way out there. I mean, way out there. Way beyond uh, public utilities and, and decent roads and no electricity, no, nothing like that. When we got there, I, I thought we were just going to go look at the building and say, that's nice, yeah, good, yeah, great. But when we got there, all the kids and half the village were there. And the car stopped about 100 yards from the school building. And they were all lined up. All the boys and males on one side, and all the girls and women on the other side. And we had to walk down the, down the aisle that they made, looking and, and greeting every one of them. Oh, really, it, it was just unbelievable. Just tremendous. And uh, then they took us up into the school. We saw the school. It was a beautiful, nice cement building, corrugated roof, and uh, not fancy by our standards, but very fancy by their standards. Because the only school that they, they had before that was, you know, uh, thatch, thatch roof, pole, bamboo pole shed that was hot in the summer and wet in the rainy season us upstairs and we had a meeting with the villagers and the schools and the, teach the school, school officials and the teachers and they offered us food and we made some speeches that were translated and um, basically gave them the school and they showed us around and then we left. And uh, when we got back to civilization, <laughs> uh, my friend that says to me, we should do that again. <laughs> we should do that again. So as I said, okay, well, let's, let's see if we can find another village that needs a school. And somebody asked me, well, how do you find the villages that need a school? And I said, every village needs a school. And most of them need a clinic. So subsequent to that first uh, school, uh, after we'd built, uh, after two or three years, we'd built a few schools each year. Another student came to a retreat. First retreat he'd ever did. At the end of it, he took Kamala and I out to lunch. He and his wife took Kamala out to lunch. And he says, oh, I just retired. And uh, uh, I made some money in my life. And uh, I want to give it all away in the next 10 years. You know anything I can do with it? So I said, you should play a round of golf with my friend. <laughs> and he did. They played a round of golf. When he came off the golf course, he said, I want to build schools too. 
So now we've been building schools for about five or six, seven years and going back to Burma every year and just going to these very remote, very remote hill tribe villages and farm villages way off the beaten path. Uh, and in some of the villages we go, we're the first foreigners that ever been there. And, and one is the first vehicle that ever been to the village and the vehicle we went in. So it's, it's out there. But it is so rewarding to, to go to these places that, well, they have nothing. They cannot afford anything to build a school. You know, even getting $50 to build a thatch roof pole shed, impossible. So in some ways I see that the, uh, the benefit that I received as a monk from the... Uh, people of Burma, and the Dharma that I received and that we now have in the West, uh, that this uh, building of schools for them is just a small token, in a way, a small token of appreciation for uh, those who made it possible for us to uh, have a strong monastic Sangha that are able to practice and to offer their teachings freely so that we can get the benefit of it. And in some ways, it seems like building schools in Burma is maybe uh, the most subversive thing we can do and get away with it. Because the, the government likes us to build schools. They're quite happy to have that. But uh, it is really a great uh, gift to be able to share that with them. And I see now that, you know, over the course of our practice, any individual's practice. There may be times of deep uh, solitude and, uh, and being alone and doing your own inner work, but inevitably uh, the pendulum swings and we come around to where we serve others in the world. And there'll be another swing of the pendulum and we go back into solitude and do more practice. So your, your time here during this retreat, even though it's very self-absorbed and self-referential. Uh, it's just one swing of the pendulum which will get expressed when you return to your homes and jobs and community. <laughs>